Hear the word of God from 1 Corinthians chapter 16. It'll be on the screen or you can read in your own Bible. We're gonna read the whole chapter. Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord, just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace, so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go with you, to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Achilla and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Today is our last sermon in this series on 1 Corinthians. Can I get an aw? I know, it's sad. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sad to see it come to an end. I, I feel like we were learning so much from this letter Paul wrote to this young church in Corinth. I hope we learned from their mistakes and questions. Now, I can't remember who I told this to. I can't remember if it was Pastor Danny or Pastor Eric I said this to, but I felt like this book really should have ended in chapter 15, the chapter we before, the one we preached on last week. I mean, chapter 15 ends in this super glorious talk of the resurrection into this beautiful triumphant proclamation that says, where, O oh, death, is your sting? Where, O oh, death, is your victory? I mean, that is an ending on a high note. You know, that's ending with this triumphant call, this ha, 
look where we are. Feels good. And that's why I feel like this, this book should have ended. This, chapter, this, this letter should have ended there. Instead, chapter 16 comes along, and it says, take up a collection. Here are my travel plans. Kind of a letdown, you know? It's kind of like, ooh, triumphant resurrection, big moment, death, haha, I looked out upon you. Where's your sting? Where's your victory to? Time to collect money and my travel plans. But you know what, actually, when you think about it, coming back to reality, back to the mundane, back to the normal after the lofty soul-inspiring talk is such a helpful thing. It's actually a great way to end this because we don't currently, we don't often live in the glorious moments all the time, do we? We most often live in the mundane, normal routines of life. We often need help seeing glory and glory and that glory awaits us. I mean, most of us walk through the normal grind of life um, most of the time. We're not always soaring on the mountaintops. We're not always feeling a camp high. We're not always feeling like this kind of, oh, I just got back from a mission trip. Woohoo! Feeling all the time. Normal for you is working a difficult job, having potty training children, striving to have enough energy and capacity to get through the day. I actually thank God that Paul closes this book in the mundane. He's reminding us that even, even in the normal, even in the usual, even in what we think is just the normal elements of life, our hope is still in the resurrection. That even in the normal, our source is still the gospel. And even in the normal, our joy, our confidence comes from the glory of God. It's this beautiful reminder that, hey, we're called to live also in the normal and bring glory to him in that time. As we look at the chapter 16, we're gonna look at four major themes. The first, if you want to take notes, you can, you can write notes here. If you don't take notes, you, can, you, just, have a great, no, you just have a great memory. You don't need to pay attention anyway. No. But if you do take notes, and um, I saw somebody's notes one time. I think I can't remember if it was Grace or Dylan or somebody. I always took really beautiful notes. It's Grace. Love your notes. But if you're taking notes, here's the parts. Here's the four themes. Number one, the first theme, verses one through four, Paul teaches about money and the church of God. Money and the church of God, it doesn't get any more real world, normal, and mundane than that, does it? How to use your money and how to give to the local church, money and the church of God. Then five through nine, it teaches about mission and the plan of God. So that's one, money and the church of God. Two, mission and the plan of God. He shares his travel plans. He tells them a little bit of what God's doing in Ephesus, a little bit notes about the sovereignty of God and his purposes. So money and the church of God. Two, mission and the plan of God. Three, then verses 10 through 18, ministry and the servants of God. He gives a list of leaders and gospel servants that he commends and that we should, what, what we should be looking for and valuing in leaders. So money in the church of God, mission and the plan of God, ministry and the servants of God. Then we're looking at verses 13, 14, and then 19 through 24. It's about maturity and the family of God. So those are the four things. What does it look like? to live the Christian life and grow in Christian maturity in the context of the church and the family of the living God. So that's our outline, money in the church of God, mission in the plan of God, ministry in the servants of God, and maturity in the family of God. That's kind of how we're gonna break down chapter 16 into those, those four themes. So let's move into everybody's favorite topic, money in the church of God. It's what everybody loves to talk about. This is just, yay, woo, talk about money. Okay, verses one through four states this. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of Galatia, so you are also to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, 
so that there'll be no collecting when I come. So when you see those words, now concerning, that indicates that the apostles responding to a question that has reached him from the Corinthians. They're asking for clarification. So now concerning this thing that you mentioned to me, this question you asked of me. So he's previously given them instruction about collections. Verse three tells us that it's a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. And then we know something about this because of something that happened in Acts. Acts eleven twenty-eight. the church in Antioch had a prophet named Agabus, another great name, who prophesied that a famine would overtake the region. And so the believers in Antioch began a collection and sent it to Judea to the believers in Jerusalem by Paul and uh, Barnabas. And so it became Paul's custom to, in all his churches to continue that pattern. So he tells us here in verse 1 that he's given the same instructions to the churches all over Galatia. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says that we're told the churches in Macedonia participated. Philippians 4 tells us that the churches all got together to send relief to the people in Judea. So here's what I want us to get from these four verses about money and about giving and about collecting to the church. There's three things I want us to see. Number one, it is a pattern. First of all, we see that there's a pattern across congregation, that giving is a pattern. It was a pattern for the Corinthians and for the Galatians and for the Macedonians. It was a pattern in Antioch. The churches together are sharing and bearing one another's burdens. The churches of the New Testament, you see, were not independent congregations. They shared a common mission and they were participating together in common relief, supporting one another under common leadership. The Apostle Paul issued specific directions about whether or not the leaders that the Corinthians would appoint to deliver their gift would go to the correct location, to the correct people. He exercised authority in this congregation. In Acts chapter 20, a council of elders and apostles gathered to issue decrees for the whole church. Like, churches are mutually connected in this pattern of giving. It was, it was normal for them. It was something that was built into the rhythms of life for them to give. Two, it was planned. The giving is a plan. Look at verse 2. It says, on the first day of the week, each of you is put aside something and stored up so there'll be no collecting when I come. Now, here's what I love. The first day of the week, since the day that Jesus came and stood in the upper room where the disciples were gathered, where the doors closed for fear of the Jews, that first Easter Sunday night since then, the first day of the week has been the day of Christian assembly for worship. So people always wonder, hey, well, Sabbath day is supposed to be the end of the week, right? Sabbath, that's when God did all his work and you rested. Why do we worship on Sunday? And most of you are like, oh, I didn't know it was the first day or last day. I have no clue anyway, <laughs> right? Because most of you, we kind of think of Sunday as the last day anyway, don't we? Is that true, anybody? That's always the way I did. I always thought the first day of each week was Monday because when you went to school. First day of the week was Monday because when you went to work. It always felt like Sunday was the last day. But in actuality, when they, when they were working out the days of the week, they would always consider Sunday the first day of the week. So Sabbath was actually on Saturday, but they switched it to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on Sabbath. Does that make sense? You guys with me so far? A little tidbit of information for you. Just, you're, you're welcome. I had no idea. I always thought Sunday was the last day of the week, but I learned something every day. In Acts chapter 20, for example, the Apostle Paul, we're told, reached the city of Tross, and there he stayed seven days. On verse 7, it says, in order that on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, he could preach to them. So he went on. That's the occasion, famously, when he went on until midnight. He actually preached a famous sermon. He went on to be midnight. So you know you guys should be really thankful for the length of my sermons. He went on until midnight. I won't go that long. But you get the point. Sunday is the first day of the week. It's the day the Christians gather for worship. It's the day upon which Christians are to give support for the saints, relief for the poor, 
and the cause of the gospel. It was a normal practice. It was a pattern built into place. And it was planned up. Notice in verse two, it says, store it up so there'll be no collecting when I come. The language you use, store it up, is the word for like a treasury. And the church was meant in that point to be the treasury to bring the collection in so that they can then store it up and under the leadership of the elders and the disciples to say, this is where it needs to go. It needs to be administered in a certain manner. So it was a pattern, it was normative, it was, it was planned, and it was also regular. It was, it was something that happened. It was, it was an event that was patterned and planned. Third, it is proportional. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put aside something aside and store it up as he may prosper, which is the ESV. The reading was done in the NIV, which instead the word says, in keeping with your income. The idea of is proportional giving based on the prospering. See, I love, this is why I love, we use both translations here. We both, the ESV and the NIVs, so we get the point. Because when you read it in just the ESV, it's kind of hard to understand truly where it says, as you prosper, but also if you read it in just the NIV, based on your income. See, it's this point of you give based on the prospering that God has given you. Not just how much you made, because if it's just how much you made, if it's based on your income, how much you made, it's because it's all about you, and you earned it, and you did it. But if it's based on how much God prospered you, you realize that every bit of what you have has not, nothing to do with your own ability, but with all the gifting and prospering that God gave you. Do you hear that? That's the beauty of looking at it in the, both N, in the NIV and the ESV here. You get the nuance of that text. Now, you've probably heard a lot about talk on tithing. If you grew up in the church in any way, you've heard that word tithe, right? And this is where this kind of idea of Paul is communicating is based off the Old Testament concept of tithe, which means 10% or the first fruits of what you make. And of course, Old Testament tithing is an Old Testament pattern. And actually, if you insist on the vocabulary of tithing, there are actually three tithes paid in the Old Testament. Do you guys know that? It wasn't just one tithe, there were actually three tithes. There was a tithe to the Levites, a tithe for the temple, and a tithe to the poor. So in other words, you're supposed to give up your first fruits to three different things. In the New Testament pattern, however, there's much more radical call than that. It's, it's a slightly different principle. It's, it's a principle of radical sacrificial generosity, a principle of generosity that's sacrificial but also cheerful. And we don't have time to go into all of that right now. We can look at different um, passages of it. But one thing we, I do want us to look at is this. In the New Testament principle, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he says, first we've been looking at Christ, who though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor, that by his poverty we might become rich. We look at what Jesus has done for us and we say, and I love this psalm, or this, this hymn, it says, we're the whole realm of nature mine. That were present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. We give not only from our resources, we give our very selves with nothing held back. All of it is to he who gave us all for us. Radical, costly, sacrificial generosity. So that we're not asking what is the minimum that I legitimately may give. We're asking rather, how may I give in such a way that reflects my devotion to my Savior who gave his all for me. And if you ask the question, well, what does Paul mean by principle of proportion here? What does he mean, give as each may prosper? Well, I think what he means, and I don't think he has a percentage in mind. I don't think he's ever thinking 10%, 20%. What, I don't think he has a percentage in mind. He, what he means is take just a good, honest look at the way God has prospered you. See how much he has blessed you. Think of the abundance the Lord has lavished upon you, his kindness and the prosperity that you enjoy. 
And then ask yourself whether your own pleasures, your own comfort, have a higher claim on your money than the cause of Jesus Christ. Ask yourself that if somebody looked at your bank account and how you spend and how you live, what would they conclude? What role and prominence does Christ and his cause play in your life and your priorities? Paul gives us a word here. It's an exhortation. It's, it's, a, it's a word about giving in the way he prospers. Can I hear you something? I want you to hear this. Paul says elsewhere, God loves a cheerful giver. And only when you understand that he has prospered you, that everything that you have is a gift from him, and it's also a gift to give to his cause because it means more than anything else that you can do, that can you ever be a cheerful giver because giving is sacrificial. Does that make sense? And so, in proportion to the way he's prospered you, that is so key to understanding the concept of giving. Because here's the problem. In our self-made Western culture world, we think nobody gave us anything. Right? So, this is silly, but this is how much I know of pop culture. There's a girl, I can't remember her name, it's like Kylie Jenner or Kendall Jenner, one of those girls, I can't remember which one it is. She was put on a list of self-made billionaires. Right? She was on that list, and she's like, I'm a self-made billionaire. And I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> you, there's no way you can consider yourself a, but she was, she was on this list. And I remember thinking about that when I read that. I'm like, you are the furthest thing from a self-made billionaire. You have your fame and your family fortune, all this stuff sets you up to be like, there's no way you're a self-made billionaire. You didn't come from rags to riches, right? And I, here's the thing that I laugh at that. I'm thinking, but most of us, no matter where we're at in life, we often think in this world that we live in that we're self-made people. I worked my butt off, I went to school, and I worked so hard when everybody else played, and I did this, or you don't know how hard I work at my job, and all this kind of stuff, and don't get me wrong, that is great, and we commend the work effort that you have, that's awesome, and you do it for the glory of God, but can I tell you this, you have nothing apart from God's grace. And if you truly understand that everything you have has been a gift of prosperity by God to you, can you have a right understanding of what is yours, and what are your resources? Does that make sense? I love that he uses the word prospers you. The second theme I want to talk about is the mission and the plan of God. And we look at this, we see verses five through nine, there's a marvelous balance here that I want us to make sure we observe. On the one hand, Paul talks about giving and the church needing resources. There's gospel work to be funded. There's mercy to be provided. There's, there's a need for resources. And without resources, this work can't be done. That's one part of this, but on the other hand, he. Paul makes sure he goes to show us that the work of God belongs to God. And there's nothing we offer that will make the church grow or see sinners saved or the lost found. Salvation belongs to the Lord and that marvelous balance is so important. To know that marvelous balance. Paul's very clear, he talks about a collection of money that needs to be given for gospel work and for caring for the poor and caring for the hungry. And so that's important to have this, but also these next few verses makes it clear that nothing will happen apart from the sovereign will of God. That we can give all the resources, put all the money, put all the effort into something, but if God doesn't move, that it's all worthless. So we look at verses five through nine, we get Paul's travel plans. He says, I plan to come and see you. Actually, I kind of love this. This makes it seem so real. Like, well, I'm in Macedonia. Kind of want to hang out with you guys for the winter, you know? Chilling here, and then I'm going to maybe hang out here for a little while. It just seems so like, like a stream of consciousness, kind of like text message, you know? It's just kind of weird. Which, I don't know. I just thought that was weird. 
And I'm going through Massachusetts if I can. If I'd love to spend the winter with you. Um, don't want to just pay a fleeting visit. I want to hang out and spend more quality time with you. Then he says, I'm in Ephesus. Um, as I write this, I'm going to stay here till Pentecost. But it's pretty cool because this wide door of effective ministry is opened up. And then we get a glimpse of his missionary plans. And the beautiful thing is, as we see a summary of his intentions, we notice the little notes and the acknowledgement that ultimately God is sovereign, not Paul. Of all people to make authoritative statements and say, I will do this, this will happen. The guy who's seen miracles occurring around him will be the one that can say that. But he acknowledges over and over again that it's not him who can accomplish anything, it's only God. The Lord is king, even to the, over the apostles' plans. He says, verse seven, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Verse nine, a wide door for effective ministry has been opened for me, even though there are many people against. Paul didn't open the door. The Ephesians didn't open the door. But God opened the door wide for effective ministry. Why this message? Why is this so important as we look at just something simple as travel plans? Why is it that clear that Paul wants us to get this? Because it looks like we're putting so much into human hands as we say the collection. Then we talk about leaders. I think in the middle of that, from collections to leaders, Paul wants to make it so clear that it's not your leaders, it's not your resources, it's not your own effort, ultimately it's the effort of, of, it's the will of move of God. And can I tell you, that is so freeing to my heart. I need to hear that. Because there are times where we feel like the ministry and the work that we do sometimes feels like we're banging our head against the wall. Sometimes the words that we speak, sometimes it feels like falling on deaf ears. And sometimes if it was up to me, and it was only up to my effort, then, oh man, I should always be giving more than I give. But knowing that I can in full confidence say, God, only you can bring forth salvation. Only you can truly change hearts. Only you can change this world. Leads me to no longer say, strive in my own power, but makes me just fall on my knees and say, God, will you do something? And it gives him the glory. Salvation belongs to the Lord and the cause of advancing of his kingdom and the gospel of the Lord Jesus belongs in his hands. And so often we measure success by the three B's, right, in the church world. The church world, the three B's are bodies, buildings, and bucks. Right? That's kind of the way you measure success in the church planting world. Guys, I'm part of a church planting network and some of these churches, like I'm part of this network of church planters, and some of these churches are huge. 5,000 people with like, oh, we have like a million services in these huge buildings. And that's what we, oftentimes, they, just, they don't mean to, but it's oftentimes what we hear. We talk about bodies, buildings, and bucks. That's how you evaluate success. That's how you evaluate whether God is moving. That is not how we evaluate metrics of success in this church. Do you hear me? We cry out for God to work mightily. We stay faithful. Guys, can I tell you the truth is that God's calling us not to be fruitful. He's calling us to be faithful and he will produce the fruit. Can I say that again? The call upon you guys is not for you to be the ones that, oh, why aren't you changing the world yet? Why haven't you cured cancer yet? Why haven't you done all this stuff? Guys, the, the call for you is for you to just be faithful to what God called you to do and let him produce the fruit, right? Guys, isn't that freeing? Doesn't that give him the glory? Doesn't that make you say there's power in the work you've done because you're not doing it on your own power. It's not doing it on your own striving. And it's contrary to the way we've kind of taught our Western world to think. But this is the gospel. And so we cry out to God, God, will you work? We cry out to God that may you open a door for your word in the triangle and around the world. 
We don't rest secure if we have more money. We don't rest secure because we have greater building. We don't panic when things aren't going exactly the way we want it to go. It all belongs to you, and it's your mission and your plan. Guys, can I tell you this? My heart needs to hear this message so much. Because I'll be honest with you guys, it's sometimes very difficult pastoring a church and having to worry about budgets and having to worry about ministries, seeing hurt people and wanting to fix it. It's hard. I'm just going to be real. And I feel it. I, I carry it. I carry that weight. And, and it, it's, it, it bears on me and it weighs on me. And I need to be reminded all the time, all the time, that it's not just me and my work and me striving and me working harder and me doing better and me becoming more and me trying to be better. God, I mean, that's kind of what I do oftentimes. That's my kind of natural go-to. And if it's not working, I, I, I can do better, I can do better, I can do better. I can try harder, I can try harder. I do that as a parent, I do that as a husband sometimes. I'm like, oh, I can do better. And I do that as a pastor. And God, can I tell you, this word hits me so hard when it says, no, it's, it's God, it's his work. He's sovereign, he's in control, and I can just rest in that. I can take confidence in that. I can sit and say, okay, God, will you move then? Does that make sense? Sorry, I don't know why I got emotional. Ministry and the servants of God is the third theme. If you look at verses 10 through 18 for a moment, keep in mind how Paul began his letter. Do you guys remember at the very beginning, Paul was talking about those Corinthians were trying to be divisive and arrogant and prideful. They were saying stuff like, oh, I follow Cephas, and I follow Apollos, and I follow Paul, and I follow so-and-so. And they're trying to claim some like legitimacy, some glory to their political stance or their political party and they're creating this kind of celebrity credence to who they are and what they're promoting and they're kind of splitting up everybody. And they had a really wrong view of leadership, wrong view of esteem. And so Paul's offering a very different way of looking at leaders and of ministry and gospel servants. He commends leaders to them, but for different reasons, not because they were impressive or dramatic or charismatic or powerful personalities. Not because of the their power of their speech or their imposing demeanor, but for very different reasons. The leaders Paul urges the Corinthians to care for and to help and to honor are men like Timothy in verse 10. It says, actually, help him, he says. Don't look down upon him. Don't despise him. Help him. Why would they look down upon him? Well, elsewhere, it says, do not let anybody look down upon you because you're young. So maybe Timothy is this young guy coming along, and he's saying, oh, don't let them look down you because you're young. He's literally saying, people are going to put you down. And he's saying, don't put him down. Then he's like, Apollos in verse 12, he describes as our brother. Just like the Corinthians themselves in verse 15 are brothers, Apollos is just another brother among brothers. And he says, these leaders devote themselves to the service of the saints. They are fellow workers and laborers. Guys, that's an important word, but Paul uses as laborers. It's an important concept. That's the same Greek word that um, disciples use in Luke chapter 5, verse 5. When Jesus asked them to cast their nets on the side of the boat, they kind of look at Jesus in frustration. And they're like, Jesus, Jesus, I've been like up all night. We've been fishing. We've been, we've been laboring all night. We've been working hard on our nets all night. We've caught nothing. And that's the word. That's the same word, laboring. They've been laboring at their nets. It's not glamorous. 
They come without prestige. They're just laborers, they're workers. They're singled out because they're servants of all. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, we read about how the word Paul used for his role as ministry servant was the word an underservant. He was the one who was an oar slave. He was the one attached to the oar. He's the one that just rode to the master's beat. Like the household of Stephanus in verse 15 and 16, men like Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, who to receive the recognition of the church, not because they're great, but because they're lowly, because they are servants. Mark 9, 35, this is what Jesus says, whoever wishes to be first must be least, last of all, and servant of all. Matthew says, whoever would be great among you, you must be your, must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you, you must be your slave, even as the Son of God came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Those aren't the values of the world, is it, when we look at leaders? That's not how we usually identify leaders and people we want to follow and emulate. We don't often look for servants to be our leaders. When we remember the prophet Samuel came to Jesse's farm, this is a long time ago when Saul was king of Israel, and the prophet Samuel went to Jesse's farm looking for the new king of Israel. And the first guy, the first son, Eliab, came out. And he's all looking like a leader. You know, he's tall and strong and well-spoken. And Samuel goes, this is a guy. Gotta be him. That looks like a leader. Nope, not him. Okay, next guy comes out. The next son comes out. Oh, this, this must be a guy. Jesse's sons must have all been pretty impressive. Nope, not him. And he went through every one of Jesse's sons and kept on rejecting. The Lord kept on rejecting. The Lord kept on rejecting because he said, the man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So every son came in. And then finally, Samuel looks at Jesse and says, are these all your sons? They go, oh, we have one more, the forgotten one, the one who's serving right now, the one who's out taking care of the sheep. He could never be the king, right? But then the Lord says to Samuel, arise and anoint him, for that is the king. That's how God works not the great and the good, not the sophisticated, not the powerful, but the servant of all, the least of them. Give recognition to them, submit to them, be subject to those. Guys, I'm gonna take a quick little aside. I'm gonna step aside here and I just wanna say this one quick thing. Can I just say, and I'm really biased on this, but I'm gonna say it anyway. The elders and the staff ministry people and the leaders in this church that you guys have appointed and stepped up as leaders, they are servants. They are such servants. They have such self-sacrificing, loving servants' hearts. They care so passionately about you and about the church. And I am so, so grateful for them. They're willing to sacrifice their time, their resources, their energy. They're willing to devote themselves to prayer, passionately pursuing and taking care of the needs of the church over themselves. And so I just want you to know, and I don't know if you guys know them, I don't know if you know all the elders, I don't know if you know all the staff people, I don't know if you know all the ministry leaders in this church, but can I just tell you, I wish you knew them better because they are such loving, sacrificial servants in this church. And I think the world of them, and I thank you so much for the servants you guys are. That's the example of the Lord Jesus. The Son of Man came to serve and not be served and give his life as a ransom for many. Isaiah says he has no beauty of form. There was nothing that attracted him to people. We esteemed him not. That's true greatness. The one who's willing to deny himself and to serve. Guys, can I just say this? Will you pray for the leaders in the churches? Because I think that's something that we've 
are not seeing in so many churches in this world. And it's something that I know that I wrestle with and I struggle with. I, I would love to see the esteem of man and I wrestle and struggle with how do I learn to be a servant and not be some power hungry kind of person. And as I wrestle and I struggle with this, I crave so desperately to be a servant, to know what it means to be the least. Will you pray for me? Will you pray for the elders and the leaders and the staff at the church that we are saved from the allure of praise of men and the, the counterfeit um, paradigm of leadership in the world? That we just make us servants and fellow workers, fellow laborers in our family together. Sound good? Last theme is maturity and the family of God. And I want to look at two places. Verses 13 and 14 are some instructions to us about very practical, easy to understand instructions for Christian maturity. And then 19 through 24 reminds us that we need one another, that we're to live out Christian life in the context of family. 13 and 14, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all, that you, be, uh, let all you do be done in love. Be watchful. Vigilant. If you take a concordance when you get home and you got a spare minute or two or 10 or 30, it's a fascinating study just to look for those words. Be watchful. Keep alert. Watch and pray. And you'll actually find a recurring theme in the New Testament. It gives practical instructions on the way to live the Christian life. Guys, the premise behind that exhortation is that we're, we're, we're at war. And there's a devil prowling around us like a roaring lion seeking to devour and we need to stay alert. We must watch and pray lest we fall into temptation. Jesus told the disciples, be watchful. Paul tells the Corinthians um, that there's just still no slumbering. Be at your post. Be ready. Be vigilant. Temptation is real. The enemy is real. There's real work to be done. The flesh is weak. But he says, stand firm in the faith. The faith here means the teaching of the gospel and the redemptive historical truth that the apostles taught. He wants us to remain immovably fixed upon the rock of biblical truth, to care about doctrine and about, about the teachings of the apostles. Then he says, act like men. Now guys, hear me when I says act like men. It doesn't mean act like men. Like, like there's different translations. Um, what are the, what was the, I can't remember, like I look up there, I totally forgot. What was that? Be courageous. Be courageous. It doesn't mean act like men. It literally means grow up, be an adult, put your big boy pants on, march you to the fray, you're gonna need some courage. It's this idea that says, be an adult in this world. It's this idea that says, go, and it's, it's, life is gonna be hard, the Christian life is painful, it is costly. Be ready for it. Stand firm, be strong. But let all be done in love. Let love animate your every action. Let love be the characteristic mark of everything you do and all that you say. May you be the type of man and woman marked by and distinguished by and known for love. And that note of love actually sounds again with clarity in verses 19 through 24, right? It says, 19, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I love this greeting, by the way. I mean, it's a hearty greeting. It's a greeting with a holy kiss. It's not something like, hey, hi. It's not some, hey, Nathan, will you tell um, Katie hi for me? 
You know, it's not one of those type of greetings. It's a, it's a, this is a family. This is love. This is warmth. This is an intimacy kind of greeting. You, know, you see, the, see the same note in verse 24. May love be with you all in Christ Jesus. They care deeply for one another. They said greet each other with a holy kiss. We don't practice that tradition. Probably a good thing. We don't want people getting sick. But... But the image, the premise is intimacy. It's family. My uncle, my uncle's Italian, okay? He married my aunt. He's from the Northeast of America, Pittsburgh area. I always joke that he's in the mafia because he has this, I, mean, he, he, I, I joke about because he, he owns a scrap metal recycling company. <laughs> and he's Italian from the Northeast. And I mean, just, he's just an awesome dude, right? But when I first kind of got close to him, every time I saw him, he'd kiss me. And I'm like, this is weird. I was a little uncomfortable, you know? But then I'm like, I'm okay with it now. All right, every time I see it, I kiss him back, you know? And it's this family thing. There's something about kissing. That's intimate. Kissing is intimate. And this is what this, this passage is talking about. It's being intimate. It's being known. It's being family together. Care deeply for one another. You simply cannot be watchful. You cannot be alert if you don't have somebody alert watching your back. Right, what is it that in the military they say about watch your six or something like that, right? Yeah, watch your six, watch your six, I don't know, something, something like that. And it's this idea that you can be alert all you want, but who's watching your back? We need brothers and sisters to watch our back because there's a war going on. We need to trust each other, learn from one another, lean on each other. Christian maturity is a group project. Do you guys hear that? Christian maturity is a group project. You can't do it on your own. You cannot use a church as an occasional provider of religious goods and services and then expect to grow in Christian maturity and faithfulness. Let me say that again. You cannot use the church as an occasional provider of religious goods and services then expect to grow in your Christian maturity and faithfulness. Now, this is a place where people who are called to live and serve together come together as we grow to learn to love one another. Love is a foundation, but we're called to do this together. In fact, verse 22, the Apostle Paul, when he writes this little postscript, he takes the pen from his writer. So Paul, and most of the time when he wrote these letters, had a secretary, had a, a writer that would do the writing for him as he would speak out the words, which is awesome. Because I have the worst handwriting, that would have to be me. Because I would write something and I have no idea what I just wrote. It's true. When I do work with Danny and Eric and we write on the whiteboard, they literally take the dry erase marker away from me because they know next time we look at the board, we would not know what in the world I just wrote. <laughs> so Paul had this writer, but every once in a while, he would take the pen out of the writer's hand and write a little something, something just to authenticate his, his, that he's writing a letter. But he did this in this postscript here to the Corinthians. He offers a word of warning, but it's so out of love. He says in verse 22, this is I writing with my own hand. He says this, I'm writing with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. He's saying, guys, I love you so much that you need to be living in love. Oh, make sure you're living in love because you're gonna be accursed if you're not. A loveless heart faces the judgment of God. You can't say you love Jesus and hate others. The truth isn't in you. We must first learn to love the Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. And then, because we love him, we can turn to love those he loves. I love this. Beautiful notice at the very last words with which the letter concludes. Kind of the same words with which the letter begins. 
Paul wrote to the Corinthians, called to be saints, sanctified in Christ Jesus. And then he concludes, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Because if there's one thing, we must be sure we don't walk away from 1 Corinthians without grasping clearly, it's this. That apart from Christ, we can do nothing. That we can't even hope to be radically generous or sacrificial without seeing what Christ has done in his generosity and his self-giving love for us first. We can't, be hope, we can't hope to be faithful in mission to which he has called us without knowing that Christ has purchased for himself a people from every tribe and language and nation. We can't hope to be servant-hearted ministers in service to the cause of Christ without seeing Jesus himself as a great paradigm of the suffering servant. And we can never hope for Christian maturity unless we seek to be watchful, stand firm, and be strong and love one another. We do it clinging to and resting on the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me plead with you to make one, certain of one thing, certain of one issue today. Are you clinging to Jesus? Is he your source? Is he the way as you see and approach life? Is he the very source of how you see everything else? I love, we shared this, I think I shared this last week, or maybe I didn't share this last week. I think I shared this in a small group, actually. Sometimes I forget where I share things. But C.S. Lewis has a quote. He says, I don't believe in the sun because I can see it. I believe in the sun because by it I see everything else. Do you cling to Jesus as your source and as the way you see rightly everything else? Because that is the only way, the only way that you can live in the manner that, that Paul is speaking about in Corinthians is by clinging to Jesus. And for you, if you're here today and you really don't know what that means, if you're here today and you have no idea what clinging to Jesus means, can I tell you something? And I hope you hear this from the bottom of my heart. I hope you understand this with everything that's inside of me. That I believe the condition, the human condition, the reality of our predicament is that you want to be known and you want to be loved and you're called to purpose. And it's in Jesus Christ can that fully happen for you because you are made for purpose. You are made for relationship with him and he provides a way for you. And if you want to know more about that, if you, that's something that speaks and resonates to your heart and this lifestyle of love and giving speaks and resonates to your heart, there are people who would love to talk to you, love to pray with you, love to answer questions, and we invite you to be able to do that during our closing worship time. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your good word. God, we thank you for the, the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, rooted and founded in, in the work of Christ. God, the, the, the questions that they had, teaching us, God, that ultimately we're called to be united in love, called to purpose, because Jesus, you gave us love first, you died for us, and you made a way for us. So may we stand firm, may we be vigilant, may we be about the mission you've called us to. God, may we be sacrificial givers, sacrificial lovers, sacrificial people who care so much about the work you've called us to. God, will you be all to us? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.